All right, this morning we are back in the Gospel of John. You might recall that three weeks ago, we paused at a very strategic place, didn't we? At what the church has traditionally called the triumphal entry. That historic moment when Jesus walked through, actually didn't walk through, rode through into the city of Jerusalem, through the gates of Jerusalem for the final time with the cross now looming before him. And from this point forward, this chapter and the next nine chapters now, we're going to be studying the final week of Jesus' earthly life. And it is always amazing to me, and maybe it is to you as well, to step back when you get to this point in the story and realize just how much space the gospel writers give to the final week. Out of three years of Jesus' public ministry, so much space is given to the Passion Week. Uh, This one week takes up nearly half of John's gospel. Think about that. Nearly half of it. The most of all the gospel writers. And even Matthew and Mark devote about a third of their accounts to the Passion, Luke being the most brief, but still a quarter of his gospel devoted to the Passion Week of Christ. And, And then when we realize and remember that God is the ultimate author of Scripture, right? He's the organizer of Scripture. The Spirit is the one who carried the gospel writers along as they chose their material. It tells us something, doesn't it? That God thinks that the study and the absorption of the truth of this Passion Week is very important to him and therefore should be very important to us. Amen? So if we're going to fully understand this triumphal entry of Christ, we are going to have to know something about the history and culture of that time. I know that if you've been in the church for any period of time, you're all like, I've heard Palm Sunday sermons before, Jeff. Uh, What can I learn that's new? I'm going to try this morning to go beyond the sort of traditional message you often hear the week before Christmas and to give you a few more layers of, of information and to deepen your understanding of what really took place that day. I also think there's some really important application that we can see in the crowds that were in Jerusalem that day that can show us some things lest you and I fall into error as we follow Jesus and wait for him to return. So to do this, we have to start by putting ourselves in the headspace of a first century Jewish man or woman to get into their sandals, as we often say, right? And let's be honest, this is not an easy thing for us as Americans to do. It really isn't. It's it's a challenge. You have to be intentional about trying to understand it. And by the way, just a quick commercial. This is why going to Israel, visiting the land matters, to get that flavor of what things are like there so that you can slip into the sandals of somebody who was living at that time. You and I have never lived in the shadow of a foreign power as Americans. In fact, we've been blessed to live in the freest society in the history of mankind. We get to live under a bill of rights that was actually designed to keep government in check. So that's what makes this hard, right? Understand this whole idea of a bill of rights, very recent thing historically, and certainly not the perspective or the Jewish experience in the time of Christ. When did the Romans conquer Israel? About 60 years before Jesus was born, 63 BC to be exact. And the Romans had a well-deserved reputation of being very heavy-handed in the way they managed all of the lands that they conquered. It's difficult to fathom just how wide and expansive the Roman Empire had become in the time of Caesar Augustus. That gives me an opportunity to show you a a map. Of course it does. Yes. So we're going to put this map up, and you're going to see how, how broad the Roman Empire was during the time of Christ. All of that yellow area was controlled by Rome, conquered managed, organized, completely taken care of. Now, we'll talk about some of the logistics of that in a second, but you can see there most of Europe, right? A big portion of the Middle East, all of North Africa, everything around what we call the Mediterranean 
area. And that blue circle on the bottom right, that's Judea. Okay, that's Israel. So you can see there how far on the outskirts of the Roman Empire Israel was. What does that mean? It means that Israel was not a prime concern of the emperor or the Roman Senate, thousands of miles away from the actual city of Rome. However, this is why Israel was important. It did sit between two historically important regions, Syria to the north and Egypt to the south. And in order to control the trade routes that went from north to south and south to north, you had to control the land of Israel. So in that respect, Israel was important. It had to be important to the Romans to control the Jewish people. Now, Rome had no understanding of Yahweh, no understanding of Judaism, nor did they care to know anything about them. Historical records show us that most Romans had absolute contempt for the Jewish people, contempt for their religion, thought they were crazy, didn't understand at all the worship of Yahweh. And that attitude was reflected in how they governed the people. We see it throughout the historical record. And this raises a really important practical question. How do you manage to control a land and a people so far away? How do you do it? So far away, so far on the outskirts of this massive empire, logistically speaking. Now, some of you served in the military. You probably have a little bit of a, of a deeper understanding than the rest of us on how you do that. First, you have to be wholly committed to not just conquering the land, but occupying it and locking it down. That is no easy task. In fact, history tells us that that is one of the biggest challenges that every expanding empire has to face. How do you manage conquered territory where the people you're managing hate you for having invaded them in the first place? Think about that. Look at what our troops faced in Afghanistan, in Iraq, the lessons that we learned there, the constant uprisings and the bloody battles. You cannot just conquer a land and then turn around and march your troops out and expect everything to be okay, that you can hold on to that prize. 100% of the time, that populace, as soon as you leave, is going to rise up and rebel. And so Rome had to station entire legions of soldiers in Judea and Samaria and Galilee. And then they had to feed them, and they had to house them, and they had to try to keep them happy. Being posted in Israel was not something that any Roman soldier wanted. It's so far away from what they would call civilization, Nobody wanted to be sent to Israel, so you had to house them, you had to keep them happy, and then you had to establish all kinds of levels of authority, government authority. That means you had to build infrastructure, and it means you had to tax the people. You had to establish a very very consistent, very detailed tax system. Now catch this. You conquer a people, and in doing so, you kill many of the fathers and the brothers and the sons of that people, and then you turn around and tax those very same families so that you can pay for your army in their land. Think that might create some animosity? You have to understand what was going on in Judea to really understand the triumphal entry. In order to manage this whole system and keep the peace, the Romans had to police it with great vigilance. They had to use the type of brute force against the people that would guarantee that every time a Jew came into contact with a Roman soldier, they got the idea that they should not even think about ever having independence again. So, what was it like for a Jewish man or Jewish woman to live under that type of occupying force? Well, every day that you woke up, you were faced with this Roman military presence. It was constantly in front of you, a constant display that you are a subjugated people. Your freedom's restricted. You're coming and going regulated. 
your possessions taxed, your attitude monitored, monitored constantly to see if you have a rebellious spirit. All of your faith, your traditions, your culture constantly being denigrated by this military presence. On top of all that, then you add two historical ingredients which stir up the pot. Number one, God had promised the Jewish people a Messiah. God had promised them a Messiah. Have you heard this? Right? An anointed one who God would send to deliver his people, a leader like Moses, from the, a descendant of David who would someday come on the scene and rule Israel in power and righteousness, a man who would usher in a never-before-seen era of peace and prosperity and justice. And most importantly for Jews living in that time, the promise was this, that this Messiah would come and crush all opposition under his feet. That is the, the very theme of Psalm 2. Now, as we know today, because it's always easier to look back on history rather than try to interpret it correctly in the moment, we know that there's a second aspect of Messiah as well. Not only would he be a king, but he would be a servant of God who would suffer and bear the sins of his people. True? That's the theme of Psalm 110. It's the theme of, of the, what we call the, the servant songs of Isaiah 40 to 55, in particular chapter 53, which we all know so well. So there's two aspects. Now here's the point. Which of those two aspects do you think the first century Jews were most concerned about? The humble sin bearer or the conquering king? Given their circumstances, given their daily life, it's obvious which one dominated their thought. Human beings are always far more interested in things like power and prosperity than they are humility and righteousness. So don't get me wrong, priests and prophets are great, they would say, but when it comes to living under this occupying force in my life, what I want is a warrior king. That's what they wanted. Second ingredient. So first of all, there's, there's, there's all this stuff happening. There's a, there's a promise of Messiah. Second of all, about 170 years before Jesus was born, the Jews had successfully driven out a Gentile army similar to the Romans in what we call the Maccabean Revolt. Unlikely as it was, a Jewish rebel army had miraculously driven out this Greek army out of Judea and had, had cleansed the temple and rededicated it to Yahweh. And it gave the Jewish people 100 years of independence, free from Gentile oppression, until the Romans marched into town. So they'd had a taste of independence, but now the Romans had ended that. Naturally, the Jews in Jesus' day viewed the Maccabean era with great fondness. They look back on that, just sort of like we look back at the Revolutionary War against England, and we're like, yeah, that was a great time, right? Yeah, we showed them. Well, they had that sense of nationalism and patriotism deeply rooted within. It wasn't that, that long ago. 170 years is actually not that long before. So the average Jewish man or woman in Jesus' day had great hope that God would act once again, that he would send another Jew to Maccabee their way, a Messiah and a deliverer who would free them from the Gentiles, and usher in this messianic era of peace. And so on the day that Jesus enters into Jerusalem for this final time, all of that is roiling around at Passover time. Bitterness towards Roman oppression, a fire of rebellion just ready to be stoked, a spirit of strong nationalism, and a hope that Messiah was about to show up. Grab your Bibles. We're going to Romans 12. Or Romans 12. Wow. We could go to Romans 12. There we go. John chapter 12. Should we go to Romans? John chapter 12. We're going to focus on verses 12 to 19. That's the big focus. That's the triumphal entry passage. 
But before we do that, let's back up to verse 1 so that we can be reminded of where we left off. We'll read that section first, and then we'll get to our primary text. Okay, so we left off with a celebratory dinner taking place in Bethany. Remember Bethany? Just two miles outside of Jerusalem, right? That's where Lazarus was raised from the dead. That's where Mary and Martha live, right? Verse 1, Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they made him a supper there, and Martha was serving. Yay, Martha. We looked at Martha last time, right? But Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. A former dead guy is sitting at the table. I love that. Verse 3, Mary then took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard. And by the way, we go back and listen. We looked at the how exp- this would have been, I think we said, $57,000 worth of perfume in today's dollars. She, she pours all of it out, right, on the feet of Jesus. Anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. So we have this extraordinary example of Mary's worship, and what John is doing is he's drawing a contrast. First of all, he talks about this genuine love that Mary shows to Jesus, and now he's going to show us some false virtue signaling that comes from Judas Iscariot. Verse 4, But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who was intending to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? That's a false virtue signal, right? And John tells us. Now, he said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. So Judas, this was a, this was a giant payday. Every drop of that perfume that went out was money out of his pocket. He was missing out on a payday here. Verse 7, Therefore Jesus said, Let her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For you always, will, for you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. And then in verses 9 and 10, we get a second contrast from John. On one side, we see a growing curiosity among the people about Jesus. But on the other side, we see hatred and murder among those who are in power. Verse 9, the large crowd of Jews then learned that he, Jesus, was there in Bethany, and they came out, not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. Like, I got to see this guy. He was, he was rotting in the grave. I got to see this guy now, right? Verse 10, but the chief priests, here's the contrast plan to put Lazarus to death also. They will violate the law in order to protect their power and their position. Verse 11, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and were believing in Jesus. Shocking stuff, right? Now, last time we looked at this timeline, okay, so I'll put it up on the screen again. We saw how Jesus and the disciples likely arrived in Bethany before sundown on Friday, and then this celebratory dinner happened the next night, Saturday. Remember, while this is taking place, those who had seen Lazarus raised from the dead, they're now going around Judea and talking up this miracle. They're talking about the story. And of course, Passover, the most beloved of all Jewish feasts, is right around the corner, just six days away. And you have to understand, Passover always, always stoked the flames of nationalism in Israel. It's the biggest time of the year. Okay, It always stoked the flames of patriotism. Thoughts of God delivering his people from the, the clutches of Pharaoh. right? Every Jew's favorite story, the defeat of Pharaoh. So thoughts of that, thoughts of the glorious past of David's kingdom, thoughts of Judah Maccabee and his victorious army. This is what's happening at Passover time. And imagine literally hundreds of thousands of Jews all from all over the empire 
coming to Israel, coming to Jerusalem all at one time to celebrate with this sense of hope. It's an important time on the Jewish calendar. Passover was a time to celebrate culture and tradition in spite of the Roman presence. In fact, many saw Passover as a time they could come to Jerusalem and look a Roman soldier in the eye and say, perhaps this is the final year I'll have to look at you. That's the way they saw Passover. And this year in particular, expectations are high. Why? Because of Jesus. Have you heard about the rabbi from Galilee? He brought a man back to life. If a man, if a man could be brought back to life, what might he do to the Roman occupier? All that's happening right now. But the question remained, is he going to show his face? Everybody knew by this point that the chief priests wanted him arrested. Will Jesus show his face? Is there going to be a showdown? I mean, you can imagine, right? Everybody's like, ooh, this is going to be good, right? There's going to be a big showdown. Maybe Jesus is going to do something spectacular. Maybe the chief priests are going to arrest him. But could this guy be our Moses? Could he be our Judah Maccabee? Could he be the Messiah? All that's happening right now. Now look at verse 12. On the next day, Sunday, the large crowd who had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, okay, so they heard the news. He's, he's on his way from Bethany to the city. Verse 13, they took the branches of palm trees and went out to meet him. They ran out to Jesus outside the city and began to shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even, look at it, the king of Israel. Now, the first half of that quote is from Psalm 118, not that last phrase, even the king of Israel. They add that in their shouting. Verse 14, Jesus, finding a young donkey, we'll come back to that, sat on it as it is written, this is from Zechariah 9, fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. These things his disciples did not understand at the first, but when Jesus was glorified, meaning later on, then they remembered that these things were written of him and that they had done these things to him. Verse 17, so the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to testify about him. For this reason also the people went out and met him because they heard that he performed this sign. Last verse, verse 19, so the Pharisees said to one another, Okay, so now we, we've got this picture of what's happening out here. Now we, the, if this were a TV show, we'd say the camera pans back to where the Pharisees are huddled in their offices. And they're, and they're like, what are we going to do? Verse 19, the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you're not doing any good? Now that's, that's the NAS, that's a little bit awkward phraseology. Here's the way you should read this. The Pharisees said to one another, you see that this is getting us nowhere. This delaying and arresting him. It's getting us nowhere. Look, the whole world, they say, has gone after him. Okay. Here's the interesting thing about the triumphal entry. All four gospel writers talk about it. They all record it. And that's, that's pretty unusual because each of the gospel writers selects certain material. All four of them describe the triumphal entry. That tells us that it has great importance. Among the four, John gives us the fewest amount of details leading up to it. The fewest amount of details leading up to it. John jumps straight from the raising of Lazarus to the supper in Bethany, and in doing so, skips over a number of things that Matthew, Mark, and Luke cover. I'll give you some examples. During this period, the other gospel writers talk about the healing of the ten lepers. They talk about Jesus talking to the Pharisees and teaching on divorce. 
They describe how Jesus says, let the little children come to me. And he talks about childlike faith. The confrontation between Jesus and the rich young ruler happens right before this period of time. And the bickering of James and John. Remember, what did they want? What did James and John want? The privilege of sitting at the right hand of Jesus in the kingdom to come. All of those things take place. And then as Jesus is coming to Jerusalem, he passes through Jericho. If you've been to the land, you know, you go right through Jericho, then up to the city, right? And in Jericho, he gives sight to a blind man named Bartimaeus, and Jesus invites himself over to the house of who? Zacchaeus, the tax collector. Okay? All of that takes place. And, of course, the other gospel writers tell us that Jesus sent a couple of his disciples ahead of him into the city to secure that donkey as well. And we'll get to that in just a second. But all those things John omits. And then there's some other things that John doesn't cover once Jesus enters the city. For example, the second cleansing of the temple. John doesn't cover it. He doesn't talk about Jesus weeping over Jerusalem or his cursing of the barren fig tree or all the extended eschatological teachings that we find in Matthew 24 and 25. Now, again, we've talked about this before, but let me answer the question. Why does he skip over these important things? Well, writing some 25 to 30 years after Matthew, Mark, and Luke, John seems to be committed not to just repeat the same material, but to give us new information. So what he does in skipping past those things is he shows us a different angle, and that is the private ministry that Jesus has to his disciples during the Passion Week. And so that's what's ahead of us. When we get into chapters 13 to 17, we're going to move out of the public realm and into how Jesus ministers to his closest friends in the final week of his life. So in John, we're going to get a whole bunch of beautiful moments and teachings that aren't found in the other three Gospels. And this is by God's design. For example, the washing of the disciples' feet. Only John records that. Jesus has promised, remember, I I go to prepare a place for you. Only John describes that. The promise of sending the Holy Spirit after he's gone. That is particularly John's teaching. The parable of the vines and the branches. The vines and the branches, right? And one of my favorite parts of all of Scripture, the high priestly prayer we find in John 17. Only John records those things. So it's sort of a a, a trade-off, right? Some things John doesn't cover, and you're like, oh, I really like that story. But he's going to give us some things that are really beautiful, things that we can really uh, uh, cherish in our hearts. Okay, context. I want to take some time to, to point out a few really important things now about the triumphal entry, things that make it uniquely important. And before we're done, I want to answer the question. There's going to be a quiz later. Was this moment really triumphal? Or something else. We'll get to that. First thing to recognize is this. This whole moment, this so-called triumphal entry, was a complete reversal of Jesus' ministry strategy. Complete reversal. Prior to this, as we've seen, he had been trying to veil his identity as Messiah, hadn't he? In fact, he told many of his closest friends, even after miracles, hey, let's keep this on the down low, right? Let's keep quiet about this. Many times, rather than getting into a confrontation, he would slip away. And we've even seen him go out to remote places rather than have to deal with the question of who he was. Now, why? It's one of the great questions. Why is Jesus constantly veiling his identity? Well, John has told us several times, because it wasn't yet his time. Jesus is on a particular timetable. It's his timetable, not the world's. And he knows when his time is to come. Now, less than a week before the Passover, knowing all the prophecies, Listening to the voice of his father, Jesus knew that his hour had finally come. It was time to offer himself up as the Passover lamb of God. 
that takes away the sin of the world. That's what we're stepping into today. So, complete reversal of strategy. Jesus carefully plans and orchestrates a public demonstration of his identity. That's what this is all about. He plans it, he orchestrates it, and he basically shouts from the rooftop, yep, I'm Israel's Messiah and King, in the most public setting you could possibly imagine. He receives the shouts of Hosanna from the crowd, doesn't he? He doesn't correct them when they shout, the King of Israel. And interestingly, Luke tells us that when some of the Pharisees who were there at that moment, when they object to what the people are shouting, what does Jesus say? He affirms what they're saying. He says, I tell you the truth, if these people become silent, the rocks will cry out. Wow, that's astonishing. Talk about your dramatic shift. Here he is declaring himself Messiah and the King of Israel at the most explosively dangerous time on the Jewish calendar and in front of Pharisees and in front of thousands and tens of thousands of people. This is really astonishing. Now, think about this for a second. What are the disciples thinking at this moment? Slip into into the disciples' sandals for just a second. Remember, they've been utterly petrified of coming back to Jerusalem. We saw this just recently, right? They feared that, hey, if we go there, we're all going to get arrested. You remember, remember how they're like, okay, well, maybe we got to go. Maybe oh, we're all going to die. They, they had just sort of given into this idea. If we go anywhere near the city, we're going to die. So when Jesus was in this strategy of laying low, they were happy to support that. But this is anything but laying low, isn't it? In fact, this is a deliberate, a deliberate provocation in the eyes of the religious establishment. This is an in-your-face statement Jesus is making to the Sanhedrin. It's as if he's saying, look, guys, I'm not going to hide any longer. This is who I am. Come and get me. What are the disciples thinking? <laughs> right? I, I, I just, if I was one, I'd be looking, are we really going to do this? Or, or um, Lord, is this really the best call? I mean, they're scared. Is this really the wisest thing for us to do this? But then imagine the scene. So they're getting ready. Okay, we're going to go psych themselves up. We're going to Jerusalem. And all of a sudden, people are coming out to meet them. <laughs> What's happening? And they're shouting. And they're waving palm branches. And they're calling Jesus the King of Israel. Now it's like, whoa, okay. Um, I, I, I sort of picture you know Peter and John high-fiving like, yeah, okay, maybe this is going to work out. Is, are we going to put Jesus on the throne right now? Are we going to establish the kingdom? It's, from their human perspective, that's what it would have looked like. So suddenly their fear maybe turns to being excited. The reality is John tells us right there in verse 16, look at it, that they were just confused and clueless, as they always are, Right? clueless about this it says these things his disciples did not understand at the first but when jesus was glorified then they remembered that these things were written of him so man i again when i get to heaven i hope i get to sit down with some of the some of the 12 or the 11 right um i have questions i have questions and like i want to know like what were you thinking in this moment I think they were probably pretty excited. We know this much for sure. Jesus' plan to provoke the Sanhedrin worked. It worked, just as he knew it would. Matthew tells us that they plotted to arrest and kill Jesus right there on the spot, but they feared the crowds. They didn't want to have to grab him at Passover because they feared that it might spark a riot. 
So we'll come back to that in a second. Now, so was this a triumphal entry? Hmm. Depends on which angle you look at it from. From one angle, from an eternal angle, you might say, well, yeah, it's triumphal because Jesus is putting himself in a position to go to the cross, and the cross is the instrument of victory over sin and death. Amen? But from a historical perspective, and from what I believe has always been sort of the traditional teaching of the church, not at all. This is not triumphal. This is tragic. I, I would call it the tragic entry not the triumphal entry. See, I was always taught, and maybe you were taught this way growing up, this is Jesus' big, his big moment on the stage, right? His, his unveiling. And that he, he was finally getting the well-deserved recognition that he was king. This was a moment of unbridled joy and victory as the people all hail him as Messiah. But I think that's a misreading of the text. I think the core of the story is the confirmation of Israel's unbelief. That's what's really happening here, and Jesus knows it. It's the confirmation of Israel's unbelief. The way I see it, Jesus didn't enter Jerusalem to receive a crown at all. What he came to do in that moment was to pronounce judgment upon the nation, to pronounce judgment. He knew that what was behind all the cheering and all the shouts of the people, he'd seen this before, right? The fickle hearts of the people, the false motivations of those who sort of loosely followed him for three years as he moved around. He knew, he knew. Now, it's going to take a few days to become really obvious, but when the crowds finally understand that Jesus has not come to fulfill their earthly expectations, he knows that they will turn away, that their faith is not genuine. This is why Luke records this prophecy in, in chapter 19. There it is, Luke 19, 41 to 44. When he approached Jerusalem, Jesus saw the city and he wept over it. This is Jesus' heart at this moment saying, if you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. The people are blind, aren't they? For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side. He's prophesying what's to come in the year 70, isn't he? And they will level you to the ground and your children within you, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Tragic, because you didn't see it. And then Matthew tells us after entering the city, Jesus went to the temple again, right? And he, he cleansed it. He drove the money changer, changers out again. And there he confronts the Pharisees and he pronounces a series of woes upon them. And then he says this, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together. The way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. Tragic. Judgment. The unbelief of Israel. So that day in Jerusalem was but another step along the path of Israel's rejection of the truth. Israel's rejection of God's son. And that's eventually going to lead to what Jesus just prophesied. The destruction of the temple and the nation itself within a generation. As the Romans dispersed the Jews from outside the land. History tells the truth. This was a tragic entry. So what was going on then with all this cheering? It's this weird juxtaposition, right? Well, but they were cheering. So what was really going on? Well, I want to share something with you historically that I think is important. as a historical trail to this, the palm branches that they brought out to meet Jesus with. What did the palm branches mean? 
Well, in the minds of the average Jewish man or woman in that day, palm branches represented one thing, Israel's victory over her enemies. And we see this in the history, in the intertestamental writings of the Maccabees. You read about how palm branches were being waved by the people way back in 167 B.C., when Judah Maccabee had his great victory, when they rededicated the temple, the people came with singing and thanksgiving and they waved palm branches in the direction of Judah. Later they show up again under Judah's younger brother Simon. After driving out yet another foreign army and establishing Jewish independence, Simon comes back to Jerusalem with his army, almost like a Roman parade with his army, with all of his captives. And the people meet him in Jerusalem and they're waving, guess what? Palm branches. The Jews, were, the Jews are a people that know their history. Nothing is accidental. It was no accident that they, they, they said, Jesus is on his way from Bethany. Grab your palm branches. It's Judah. It's Simon. It's victory over Rome. Grab your palm branches. And by the way, this isn't just told in history. It's told in archaeology. You know I was going to bring coins, right? <laughs> Look at these pictures of coins. Two different periods. Two different important periods. On the left, you see coins from the Maccabean period. And what do you see on them? Palm branches from the period of Judah and Simon Maccabee. On the right, you see coins from a different rebellious time after 70, what we call the Bar Kokhba revolt that took place between 132 and 135 AD. A rebel army mints its own coins, rebel coins with what on it? Palm trees and palm branches. Because this is what the people believed. The palm branches were a well-known national symbol, a metaphor for military victory over Israel's enemies. And so what was on the mind of those greeting Jesus on that day? Sadly, they were putting their faith in a messianic liberator, a political king, who would give them all the physical and temporal things that they longed for. Peace and prosperity and independence and more. So Their hope was tragically misplaced. They didn't really want God's son. What they wanted was stuff and comfort more than anything else. Now, you might object. You're like, but what about the cries of Hosanna, right? Straight from our call to worship this morning, from Psalm 118. What about that? Well, Psalm 118 is the climax of what are known as the Hallel Psalms, which were historically sung at the time of Passover. As people ascended up to the city of Jerusalem, they would sing the songs of ascent. And it is clearly a messianic psalm and a declaration of trust in God. Listen again to the words. Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. Save us, or Hosanna, we pray, O Lord. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But here's the key question. What kind of salvation were they looking for? Save us, O Lord. Well, what kind of salvation are you looking for? Do you want a humble sin bearer? Or do you want a political king? Do you want to be saved from your sin? Or do you want to be saved physically from the Roman army? That's the key question. Now, if they'd understood Psalm 118 correctly, they would have realized that, yes, Jesus is going to be king, but only after he's rejected. In fact, that truth is laid out right there in Psalm 118. Maybe you heard it as we read it earlier. The stone that the builders rejected, that's Israel, has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. Later, Peter is going to quote that in the New Testament, isn't he? He's going to be rejected first. But they didn't want to see that. The Jews did not want to see... 
hey, I don't see that verse. I only see the other verses. <laughs> do we do this sometimes? We do. The crowd that day were like so many people today, folks who profess to know Christ, but they only want a partial truth. Only a partial one. They pick and choose the parts of Scripture they like. They pick and choose the parts of what Jesus says that they like, and they hold on to those things, and then they pretend not to see the rest because it's too hard. It's too difficult. They don't want it. And it's a false faith. It's, in the end, it's a, that type of faith where you pick and choose, it's not going to save. It's a false faith. Here's the truth. If you want someday to welcome the all-powerful king of kings who will ride someday on a war horse, First, you have to surrender to that suffering servant on the humble donkey. Can't jump to the warhorse. Can't jump to the conquering king. You start with the suffering servant. There is no other path to the Father. Again, Jesus knew all this. None of this catches him by surprise. He's orchestrated this whole thing. He knows. Do you remember, remember way back when John described the feeding of the 5,000 up in Galilee? Remember what the people did after they all ate and had their fill? They said, let's make him our king. And Jesus was like, whatever. And he sailed back to Capernaum. Like, no, that's not how it works. Nothing has changed. Same type of attitude, uh, a sign faith, a what can I get out of this faith? And they're not going to stick around once Jesus gets arrested and nailed to a cross. He knows it. It's tragic. Now, a quick PS on the Sanhedrin, and then we'll get to just a brief application when I read verse 19, look at it there. What I hear is the sound of panic and fear. The chief priests see the crowds run out to Jesus. They hear the shouts. They recognize. Uh, I just picture them going, are you serious? He's riding in on a donkey? <laughs> we all know the prophecy of Zechariah. They knew what he was doing. They hear the shouts of Hosanna. He's not pushing away from the claims of being the king of Israel. So in their chambers, they're like, well, how long can we wait now to arrest this guy? We are losing control of the situation. Fear and panic. What if the people decide to reject us and start following him? These guys are trying to avoid seizing him during the Passover season, but that's why they say, hey guys, look, this waiting is not getting us anywhere. Desperate times call for desperate measures. We don't want to do it this way, but we've got to control the situation. We have got to grab him now. Friends, it's exactly what Jesus wanted. He provoked it. It's exactly what he wanted. He's forcing their hand on purpose and in their selfish desire to hold onto their power and get rid of this threat, the Sanhedrin is going to end up fulfilling the will of God. <laughs> the sovereignty of God, right? Jesus is marked off as the one who will die as the Passover lamb, and he's making it happen sovereignly in this story. God's timing is always perfect. You cannot thwart the will of God. Not even the chief priests of Israel can thwart the plan of God. We see it right here. Look at the statement at the very end. The whole world's gone after him. I think that gives you an idea of just how shaken they are by this day. Everybody's going out there. Now, obviously, that's hyperbole. It's an exaggeration. Not everybody in the world is going out there. But look what John records next in verses 20 to 23. Now, there were some Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. Seriously, Greeks? These then came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and began to ask him, saying, Sir, we wish 
to see Jesus. Greeks. And Philip came and told Andrew. And Andrew, Philip came and told Jesus. Yeah, the whole world. What, what John means to show us is not every single person in the world, but yeah, not just Jews, but Gentiles as well are now beginning to seek the face of Jesus, to seek his a hearing with him, to hear him teach and to see him for themselves. How terrifying this must have been for the Sanhedrin to see their power and authority slipping away. Okay, what do we, what do we take from this application-wise? Well, obviously, don't be like the chief priests. <laughs> Let's pray. No. Uh, <laughs> did anybody else grasp that from the story? Yeah, don't be like those guys, right? Because they're spiritually blind, and they have this lust for power, and so they oppose. Get this. These are the shepherds of Israel. They oppose the very work of the God who they claim to know and serve. And so listen, if you... If you want to oppose God and reject his son, you should have a reasonable expectation that someday you will be judged and condemned for all eternity. Right? Hebrews even says that. It, that's the reasonable expectation. If you say, I oppose you, God. I want nothing to do with you. I reject your son. That's the expectation. Condemnation, judgment, and punishment. So don't be the chief priest. More practically, for you and I, don't be like so many in the crowd that day that cheered Jesus for all the wrong reasons. This is subtle and dangerous for every one of us here. Why, why do you worship Jesus? It's a question we should always be asking. The focus of that Passover crowd was, was purely temporal, not eternal. It was physical, not spiritual. It was about receiving, not about submitting. They were overjoyed about the prospect of being a part of the triumphant Jesus movement. Who wouldn't want to be a part of that? But not so excited about being a part of the suffering Jesus movement. Mm. They were overjoyed about being a part of something that was bigger than them, that God is going to pour out his blessing and we're going to get all this stuff. But not so much about submitting their wants and desires to God's will. Remember, Jesus didn't say, take up a crown and follow me. He said, take up a cross and follow me. It's a big difference. Triumphalism. The church has suffered from this over the centuries, this false idea of triumphalism that, man, if, if Jesus is really Lord, everything should go really well for us. That's not the promise in Scripture. Take up your cross and follow me, Jesus said. Church history is filled with all kinds of ways that men and women have tried to do this, to try to shape Jesus to fit their desires to make Jesus in a mold that fits what they want. And again, it's false faith. Some in the early church wanted to make Jesus the great philosopher to compete with all the Greek and Roman philosophers that were out there. Later, some wanted to make him a, a, the perfect ascetic, a monk that they could follow. During the Enlightenment, they tried to just make him a moral teacher, this really kind rabbi that constantly taught, taught us how to love God and love one another, and that's all. Some appealed to him strictly as a, a model for pacifism, which is what their heart's desire was. In the 20th century, some tried to make Jesus the pure liberator of the poor. And on the other side, some people made him like the patron saint of capitalism. There's a million ways to try to morph Jesus, right? If you want to be a, a false you know, professor of faith, 
but use Jesus as a tool to further your ends, you can do it. Some radicals have used him as the spiritual leader of their revolutionary movements. Even today, you'll find people say, well, Jesus is the first great Marxist or socialist, bent on nothing but social justice and economic justice. And of course, maybe most common today, you have people that try to make Jesus into the great genie, the one who only wants to give you good things and help you get out of all the discomfort and difficulty that life throws at you, the great genie. Where all these people have gone wrong is the same place that the Passover crowd went wrong. They greeted and welcomed Jesus with their own selfish ambitions in mind. They tried to shape Jesus to their agenda rather than the other way around. Guys, we can all do this if we're not careful. And because of where their hearts were at, the Passover crowd that day was blind to what Jesus claimed about himself, blind to the offer that he was making. He was offering the very thing that they needed most, forgiveness of sin, but they were blind to it, blinded by their selfish ambitions, the things they wanted out of him. They exchanged this precious heavenly offer of forgiveness of sins for earthly stuff. We can all fall into that trap if we're not on guard. So why are you here this morning? Why are you here? This, why have you chosen to wake up on a Sunday morning? The world doesn't do this, you know. <laughs> and to come and worship Jesus. Is it a biblical reason or is it a self-centered reason? This is, a, this is not a one-time question that we ask ourselves. This is an ongoing heart check that we need to be doing. Why do I do what I do? Why do I come and worship Jesus? The only right reason to seek after him is because of who he truly is that he is God's anointed one, that he is the rightful king over every heart and every life. As the Passover lamb, he died to take away sin. As the vindicated son of God, he rose from the grave. And as conquering king, he will one day return in power and great glory to reign over all things. That's what scripture tells us. And everybody who trusts in him alone as savior and Lord will overwhelmingly conquer and live with him for all eternity. That's why we should be here this morning. That's why we want to worship Jesus. I'll close with this. Did you know that the book of Revelation reports another scene where palm branches get waved? Mm, it's in Revelation 7. After these things, John says, I looked and behold a great multitude which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands and they cry out with a loud voice saying, salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Friends, that is the appropriate use of palm branches in the presence of the conquering Lamb. First he had to be rejected. First he had to die. But he's not staying that way. Friends, never forget that there is coming someday soon a true triumphal entry. Right? Jesus, not just the King of Israel, but the King of kings and Lord of lords, We'll come back to where? Jerusalem. The true triumphal entry, right? Zechariah 14.4 says, On that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives. If you've been to Israel and you've stood in that spot looking down on the Temple Mount, you know what that feels like. Someday his feet will come back to the Mount of Olives. And Revelation 19.11 tells us, In righteousness, in that moment, he will judge and make war. With a robe dipped in blood, he will strike down the nations and he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. That will be a triumphal entry. Friends, that is our conquering king. Question is, this morning, 
are you ready for him to arrive? Let's bow our heads. Lord, this is, a, this is not an easy story for us to comprehend as Americans living in the time we live in and not feeling the weight of what the Jews were in that day, Lord. This is tough for us. But I thank you, God, that you've shown us what false faith looks like. You have warned us through this story of what it means to try to shape you for our own ends, that we would take our selfish ambitions, Lord, and try to make you slave to us. Oh, Lord, protect our hearts. Protect our minds from falling into that error. May we submit ourselves, every portion of us, our minds, our hearts, our lives to you. And Lord, may your will be done in our lives, even if it is going to be difficult, even if we are going to have to suffer, because we know, we know that our reward comes in the life to come. So God, give us that big perspective. Give us that eternal view of what you're doing in our world. Help us to trust you even as we look to the sky and await your return. Thank you for the lessons you give us in every single word of Scripture. Seal these things to our hearts for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.